and welcome to Matt and Kevin Talk Church, two pastors, two old friends from two different denominations in two different states, talking about faith, the Bible, our cultural moment, and the ins and outs of church ministry. I'm Matt Curtis. And I'm Kevin Sheehan, and we're Talking Church. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, welcome to the podcast, everybody. How's it going, Kevin? Uh, it's going. Um I um as as Matt can see, I'm sitting in my dining room because uh, my wife and kids are not here right now. It's uh it's uh, we were talking about this and I think this is the first time in seven years that I've had the house to myself overnight. So it's kind of a weird experience. So nice. Is yeah. it spooky? Are you afraid? Uh not yet. Although I have okay. like <laughs> the first night I like went to go check on the boys like twice. Only to remember, oh yeah, they're not here. You're uh, like, oh my gosh, they're gone. Yeah, <laughs> so it's just kind of very strange. Uh, yeah, I, my wife is out at her college homecoming weekend in uh, Miami of Ohio, and um, she brought the boys with her because they have Monday off school for Columbus Day. This is today is October 9th. It's a Sunday night, um, so they have the day off. So it kind of just worked out that she could take them. Um, the boys have been with uh, my mother-in-law and. My wife's been with her college friends. First time that the five of her like housemate, college housemate friends were all on campus together since their graduation. Mm. So that's been fun for her. I think I saw something about that on the Facebook. So I wouldn't know. I'm not on the (laughs) Facebook. Yeah, it's been fun for all of them, I think. So I've had, you know, they left Friday afternoon. Um, Yeah, I've been keeping myself pretty busy, but uh, they'll be home tomorrow. Nice. Yeah. Well, what are we talking about today, Kevin? Well, um, today we thought we would talk about Carl Truman's latest two books. Um, the, the, the Big Mama is uh, called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, about a 400-page highly academic work. Um, came out, I don't know, what, three, four, five years ago now? No, it came out like no, no, 2020. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of yeah. something else. Yeah, 2020. Um, no, yeah, it, it came out. Anyway, anyway, yeah. so so that's a relatively recent one. Uh, it took me a little while to get to it, but I got to it. And then he wrote sort of a companion book called Strange New World, which is more like a 150-page, uh, more accessible, more lay language, um, basically covering the same topic. Although I was I was sort of surprised that it wasn't just like the same stuff, just less of it. It was actually you know some new material and kind of reworking some of the arguments. Um, in some ways, it's sort of like a volume two in that you can, you know, he took some um, feedback and, and kind of rehashed. Well, things. and in between his writing of the rise and uh, the, the rise and triumph, like COVID happened. Right. So. Well, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, the so world... it's interesting. So like Strange New World it will probably be the more kind of popular ones because of its size. And I believe uh, my church here will be uh, doing it kind of as a book study sort of thing for Sunday school in the winter quarter, I believe. That's awesome. Uh, which will be really good. Um, I, would, I would encourage it. Uh, Strange New World, Carl Truman, and the larger work, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, if you really want to dig into it. Again, Rise and Triumph is it's a pretty academic work. I mean, I, have, I had a bachelor's degree in philosophy, and I found that it was... <laughs> it was helpful to at least like recognize some of the names that he was throwing out there. Um, yeah. But it was I mean, still... I found I could track with it. Like I read it a year ago. Like I read it when it came yeah. out. Like, yeah. 
it was one of those that I like pre-ordered because I look, I, I I'm a fan of Truman's work just generally. And look, his work is pretty niche. You know what I mean? Like if you're a philosophy and theology nerd, you've read him, but if you don't, then, then that's not your wheelhouse and you wouldn't have heard of him. But so um, I read that in 2020, he was part of my, you know, quarantine reading during, right. during that time. Right. Um, but I, I, and I recently got a strange new world, but I haven't dug into it yet. Okay. I basically read them back to back. So it was kind of boom, boom, man. That's a lot. Because I found with Rise and with Rise and Triumph, I had to read and like think about it, and then and then pick it up again. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did a lot of highlighting for sure. I did too. Um, in that one, yeah. yeah. So anyway, it's probably worth talking about. So what is this book about that you've been yap- yakking on about for a while? Yeah. So here, I'll just read the inside, you know, uh, cover sort of synopsis of of it, since that is probably just the best place to go. Um, it says modern culture is obsessed with identity. Since the landmark Obergefell versus Hodges Supreme Court decision in 2015, sexual identity has dominated both public discourse and cultural trends, yet no historical phenomenon is its own cause. From Augustine to Marx, various views and perspectives have contributed to the modern understanding of the self. In this timely book, I always love these uh, front cover. I mean, that's pretty accurate from my reading of this. Oh, no, it is. It's just kind of funny. In this timely book, Carl Truman analyzes the development of the sexual revolution as a symptom rather than the cause of the human search for identity. Truman Mm, Truman surveys the past, brings clarity to the present, and gives guidance for the future as Christians navigate the culture and humanity's ever-changing quest for identity. Yeah, so there's in a nutshell. What's the Matt Curtis version? uh, You know, quick summary. I mean, I feel like that's a pretty accurate summary. Um, uh, the, the the rise and triumph is he's giving sort of the philosophical underpinnings for the sexual revolution is how I would is how I would say it. He's giving like it's not just the fact like the kind of the tagline is um, what like twenty five or thirty years fifty years ago I'm I'm a I'm a man in a woman's body would not have made would have been unintelligible, and so he's tracing how did it go from being utter nonsense to like. The new orthodoxy that if to deny that is, you know, bigoted. And so he's tracing, right. like, how did we get there? So it's part like philosophy, part social history and part like theology. I mean, there's a lot happening. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. And he's quick to say at the beginning of it that he's not trying to much as you can. He's trying to be objective. And he's like, I'm just trying to be academic and doing a survey of history, basically, and a survey of thought, yeah. a history of thought. Yeah. And uh, some sociology, I think, too. Yeah. But, yeah. And, and not trying to kind of give opinions necessarily or be a polemic. Um, and I think he's successful at that about 97% of the time. There's a few yeah. places where he uh, obviously shows his hand a little bit. It's like, oh, okay. He gets a little snarky and, you know, whatever. But uh, for the most part, he stays. I think like fairly objective and just kind of academic and look, look, here's just the facts. And he's also um, readily confesses that any historical survey is a survey is, is is incomplete that that it's selective and you can't touch on everything. Um, And so he recognizes that and he, and he, you know, kind of works from there. So, well, and he just says, here's my historiography. Like here's, here's the method I'm using. I mean, right. Yeah. Right. So I thought that was fair, you know, um, I thought that that was all good, but anyway, I should probably kind of get into this sort of like describing basically what his argument is. 
uh, in five minutes or so. And then, and then uh, at some point we want to kind of reflect and sort of do some application because he doesn't really do this a lot in terms of, okay, church, here's what you do. Which is because um, that's not what the book's for. Right, right, right. So he's not doing that, but it is, it, it does set you up for that. Right. I mean, it's sort of the natural next step. And I think especially more of a strange new world. It's definitely setting you up. There's actually like study questions and things like that in it. Yeah. Um, so we want to spend a little bit of time doing that in the second half of the show. Um, sure. But let's spend a little time just talking about some of Truman's ideas. I'm kind of curious for you, Matt, since it's been about a year or so since you've read it, like what things stick out a year later, you know what I mean? In terms of concepts or ideas that, uh, that you're still kind of going you're still thinking through or find yourself coming back to as huh. having like explanatory power or whatnot. I think um, this is one of those things that uh, is obvious um, on this side of it, but it wasn't necessarily before. It's sort of like, you know, like before you get married and someone says, Hey, you know, men and women are different and you're like, duh. And then you live with one and you just understand it in like a deeper way. <laughs> right. Um, right. I think before, um, I read this book. I, I mean, because I have a humanities background, I knew that like the romantics were important. Um, but I would not have connected the romantics to um, the sexual revolution in the ways that he did. Th th does that make sense? Um, well, to me, maybe. But can you like, elaborate a little more? So he he's saying that like the romantics and sexual identity being like the the center of who we are. Right. Um, started a long time ago. It did not start in the 1960s. He's saying the sexual the sexual revolution really started in the 1860s. I mean, like that's what he's saying. And while again, yeah. from a literary point of view, I would have said the romantics were important and you should read them. He's saying, um, no, the things they were writing really had a shaping effect on worldview and how people see them like define themselves. And so the romantic ideals that were um, put forward set up the ideals we have now like they're they're they were were downstream from that yeah and i would not have necessarily made that connection yeah i mean again it's been a year so i don't know if i'm doing it justice but that's well i think it's always interesting to see like what sticks with you like after time yeah. moves on like i i kind of just finished it fairly recently so yeah a lot of those things are buzzing around but yeah, you know, it's the things that I haven't read for a while. It's like what still sticks out. That... Well, and I've gone back and read passages too. Yeah, so, I mean, not yeah. just in not for prep for this, but just it's, it's kind of a reference book, frankly. I mean, it kind of is. Yeah, 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 yeah. So part of what Truman does is he takes um, several kind of more contemporary philosophers, moral moral philosophers, and whatnot. Yeah, and and uses some of their language to sort of help shape the entire di dialogue of the book. Yeah, I actually found that pretty interesting. Um, yeah, I was familiar kind of with with two of the three main ones. Um, you know, one being Charles Taylor. Well, of course, yeah. And uh, and some of some of this was like it just helped it helped give me some words to sort of to use to describe some things that either I've noticed before but just couldn't articulate, or now I can sort of see them in a new light. So. One of Charles Taylor's kind of phrases that he uses is the social imaginary. Yeah. Which is, which is basically like how, how like larger societies just imagine the world, not in a make-believe sort of way, but in terms of like what's possible, like what, what kind of falls within the realm of 
um, of possibility of, of what can and can't be true or can and can't be just or good or, you know, whatever it is. Um, so he's trying to say like the social imaginary has to sort of be in place for an idea to take root. Yeah. Right. Like it has to have some kind of feasibility just built into the larger sort of cultural milieu or the social imaginary of a people, you know? So if you look at like this stuff that's, you know, happening now in the 21st century, LGBTQ issues and whatnot, there wasn't a social imaginary in place 200 years ago for that to ever get off the ground. But because yeah. of all these things that have come forth since, you know, the romantics and just everything else that he, he winds up tracing, it's like, well, now we're at a place where it's like, okay, yeah, we can imagine, you know, some of these ideas and we can imagine some of these things happening. And so now when those movements come forward, it, it, it has a place to sort of root, I guess. Right. So I thought just the idea of a social imaginary was, was really interesting to me. And I think it, uh, it has some repercussions even for just how we, I'm not sure how to say this exactly. But... For me, it helped me understand what I'm up against on Sundays. You know what I mean? Like even Christian people have a sense of this. So have to share like the social imagination of society to some degree, even if we resist it, like it's, we're still influenced by it, which is part of the point of his book. Right. Which is one of the things I appreciate. It's not just us against them, or it's just a matter of knowing the right morals and following them. It's right. We're all engaged in the social imaginary. We might sort of apply it differently in some ways, but 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 not, not always because you know another one of the charles taylor isms uh that i've thought has been helpful is the idea of uh he calls it expressive individualism yeah he's saying we live in an age of expressive individualism um i thought it was interesting like early on truman kind of made the point he said you know if you had asked my father whether he was satisfied with his job and his father was like a blue collar, you know, working class guy in, in Britain somewhere. I think he worked at yeah. a factory. I forget where he said he worked. Yeah. in the, but, you know, fifties or whatever. Yeah. Right. And, and he's like, my father would have said yes, because it allows me to provide for my family. And he says, if you ask me, am I satisfied with my job? I'm probably going to think more in terms of, do I find it personally fulfilling? I kind of just stopped on that for a second. I was like, that's just a whole different. Orientation. understanding or orientation of what it is and what life is for and what work is for. Um, it was interesting. It was really interesting. That's like, I've never quite thought of it that way. And so, you know, Taylor's phrase is exp- we live in an age of expressive individualism. Yeah. Have you, have you read the Taylor book he references? Uh, no, the closest I've come is reading James Smith's sort of cliff notes version of so like it's a slog it's 800 pages right um but it is worth the effort yeah yeah um so the idea of expressive individualism is that you know we're an age first of all where we're individualistic right rather than rather than communal Um, we tend not to think about what's good for the community or the nation or the whatever but more for you know uh myself um and then expressive in the sense of um, satisfaction comes from being, being able to express yourself. In yeah, whatever, so life in is performative. Right. Yeah. So, so life becomes a performative um, sort of dance. Um, and and uh, it's, it's satisfying in as much as I'm able to kind of find fulfillment in expressing myself. 
which I, again, like I'd never quite thought of it that way before. And I, and I, and I just had to sort of stop and reflect on that and still am. Um, because I think that's absolutely true of myself that definitely think about satisfaction more in terms of, you know, do I have, well, even this is an example, I think at the last episode or two episodes ago, talking about, you know, when I'm writing, I just sort of feel more alive, you know, yeah. alive, complete, happy, satisfied, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, okay, but so, you know, like that's just part of our social imaginary where we've been taught by movies and culture to sort of go your own way, express yourself. I mean, every Disney well, movie ever with a kid, it's always finding your own way and, and, and uh, yeah. we're bucking this trend and, and you're, our grandparents would never have said, I feel mo you know what? My job just makes me feel alive. Like they, they would not have, they, they wouldn't have had that category. Yeah. It might've been important in some way. Right. And I saw the value in it, but it wasn't, Oh, I feel, I feel fulfilled. And no expectation that they should, you know what I right. mean? Like self actualization, like psychology is a part of it too, is not a thing. Yeah. Right. Right. And yeah, you know, Truman is he does point out that these things aren't necessarily like good versus bad categories. Yeah. He's just he's just making observations. Yeah. Um, and he says that at some point with some of these things, it's like not all of this is bad. Yeah. Like it's actually good to recognize like individual worth. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, the scriptures so, commend it, by the right, way. Right. And so on yeah. and so forth. So it's not like this is a oh man, our grandparents had it right and we're, we're the screwed up selfish generation or whatever. It's like, no, that's actually not what he's saying. Right. But he is making that point and that, and that, you know, that helps us understand like the kind of the overall argument because now we can kind of look back at the past and he looks back, I mean, really all the way to Augustine. Um, so a long time, but especially the last, he mentions the Reformation a little bit, um, yeah. but mostly the last two to 300 years. Yeah. Um, but even with the Reformation, it, it, it went from, well, um, your religion is dictated by where you grew up, you know, what what country you lived in, what family you belong to. The idea of like personal choice or preference in your religion just wasn't a thing. Like until, you know, the Reformation kind of changed that. Yeah. He doesn't say it just like that. Like what, 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 at least not to my memory, he's talking about like the choice to believe in God or not believe in God was not like the same as it is now. Well, yeah, but, but he also kind of says like, you know, a lot of this is dictated by your circumstances that have nothing to do with you. Um, yeah. But it's not like, ah, I can choose to be a Methodist or a Catholic or a Presbyterian or, a, you know, whatever. It's like, well, if, if, if this is 1500 and you live in Italy, guess what? <laughs> yeah. Like the whole the whole concept didn't make any sense, but now we live in an age where part of our social imaginary is that we choose what we want to believe and choose to express our faith in whatever ways. And, right. and he's saying, like, look, that that's a good thing, um, generally, but we do need to recognize, you know, some things that go along with that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I mean, he starts. He kind of really starts the story with Rousseau. Yeah. Um, Jean Jacques. I read a lot of Rousseau in college. Oh, lucky guy. Nah, no. <laughs> Brutal. One of the tenets, I guess, that Rousseau was 
espousing was the idea that um, humans are basically born good and it's, you know, society that corrupts them. Right. Um, and therefore, um, trying to kind of throw off those societal constraints and, you know, kind of be your own person. So it's sort of like the advent in many ways of right. this expressive individualism. Um, so he kind of, you know, he goes there. Uh, you know, the romantics come along. Um, he talks a little bit about Hegel. Yeah. I read Hegel in college for I did too. philosophy and my goodness, Hegel was difficult to work through. Um, you know, and then you get like Marx and Nietzsche who are kind of taking some of those same ideas. Um, but they're also sort of saying like, well, look, um, the, the, the story of history really has been these, you know, societies that are imposing different, whether it's morals, um, sexual codes, whatever it might be to kind of keep everything in control. And so they become kind of anti-history, anti-historical. Yeah. He refers to it as a third world culture. I think that might be a Philip Rife thing. Yeah. A third world culture um, in the sense of and what he means by that is not what we think of at all. Third world right. ec economics. But meaning, like, you basically throw out any sacred order. Yeah. Like, whether that's religion or whether that's just history itself. And say all that is bad. So that's how we get Marx kind of, you know, with his kind and, of revolutionary and, ideas. And if that's not like a description of America in 2022. Right. Holy cow. But Right. Right. So, again, this is just sort of kind of building up, building up. Like, all these pieces are sort of coming together. Right. And then you throw Freud into the mix. Right. And his ideas about, you know, we're, Sex, we're yeah. sexual even from children, you know, the age of children and, and all that um, gets into Marcuse. I'm not going to get into that. Um, but anyway, kind of all these pieces sort of come together. Right. And so you start to kind of see over the course of the book, like, I don't want to say the inevitability, but you sort of see like the collision happening. Well, it's <laughs> okay. This is how we got here. Yeah. Right. Right. Like yeah. it's sort of the slow motion collision. Like, oh, here comes this train of thought. Oh, here comes this train of thought. And they all kind of collide with this idea of, okay, throw off social conventions, um, express yourself. Uh, sex is everything. Um, history is nothing, you know, all the stuff. And so we, and so here we are. And now it becomes feasible for us to think as we do in terms of like the old order is gone. It has no bearing, has no value for us. Um, so out with the old and, uh, express yourself however you want and that includes sexually and it kind of goes a step further and says it's not just a matter of sort of behaviors or preferences but it even becomes part of identity itself right and that's the part he says that's you know would not have been you know we would for most of history we would not have understood the sexual part of ourselves as being like core to who we are right but that's a relatively new right idea right and so, yeah. and so to, you know, kind of push back against, you know, current movements or whatever is, is to really push back against the, this, their idea of themselves because it's so right. core and their very identity, um, right. it, it touches at a deeper level. So I, like, it's just sort of a fascinating book. Like I'm sure people who know history well could probably, you know, rebut points here and there and whatever else and and he's pretty free to admit 
that. That's kind of funny, but it's funny that you said that because I was just thinking when I read the book, I thought I'm looking forward to like the rebuttal the rebuttal book or articles. Right. And there just hasn't been. Right. And yeah. I think and I think yeah. partly because like the logic of his argument is pretty like you can quibble about like particular details. Yeah, but or how much how much of an effect did this really have, you know, on on later thinkers, but but but, but I think his argument is pretty unassailable yeah and like, you can I, you can certainly see like i said like the pieces coming together yeah well again it's why you haven't had like man i expected the lgbt community to have pitchforks you know what i mean um but yeah. that didn't happen well in some ways it's not it's nothing in that that they like need to well, rebut maybe but kevin you and i both know that you don't have to say something controversial for people to make a big deal <laughs> right right you know what i mean like but he is just sort of saying like mean? this is how we got here yeah and so whether that's celebrated or whether that's bemoaned this is how we got here you know um so in some ways like even if you're um all in favor of of the modern quarter movements in that direction um it's nothing really to like concern be concerned about with with what truman has done he's just saying look this is how you got here so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it a, it's the, a work of history um, the part that i thought folks were going to get like you know all in a twist about was when he's going over the supreme court stuff well and yeah saying, and that and that is where he I gets mean, a little bit polemical well i don't know i don't know i think he's just reporting what happened and he's saying these cases are are the are in some ways the result of these cultural forces over here right oh um, yeah yeah but but so he's not he's not even making a judgment call about overfall so much as he's just saying like it's downstream like we think that like supreme court makes a decision and then culture changes and he's saying no it, it actually works the other way yeah and it's been coming for a while right yeah and so I mean, he, I mean, the argument he's making is, is that battle was over a long time before the Supreme Court yeah. did anything. I mean, that's his, that's his point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, why don't we stop there? Let's take a break. We'll come back and, and try to kind of tie this in a little more, um, either personal reflection or just kind of what, what do we do with this as Christians and as a church? So grab your favorite cozy beverage on this chilly fall evening. Yeah, that's right. And we'll or- be- if you're driving right now, please don't do that. It's dangerous. Hands on wheel. Anyway, ten and two. Uh, ten and two. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll see you when we get back. Hey, welcome back to Matt and Kevin Talk Church. We've been talking, well, not so much church as uh, Carl Truman's new-ish book, uh, "The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self," and just the philosophical, sociological, and really psychological text that it is and so we kind of gave a rundown of the general argument he's making and to be fair like to really get the full argument of the book like you're gonna have to read the book because we like scratched the surface of what he's saying like it's a deep book i guess is what i'm saying right um and so if you're down for that go get it and read it and so what we wanted to do in this section is just bring some application to like okay given his argument like what what as followers of jesus as people who want to walk with you walk with Jesus and have an apprenticeship with Jesus. Like what, what does it look like uh, to like take, like just be aware of the cultural forces that we're dealing with. So Kevin, <laughs> take how us then shall we live? <laughs> right, right, right. 
Um, yeah, and that's a that's a great question. And like I said, I I've just finished this fairly recently, so I'm sure I'm be thinking on this for a while, and we'll have different answers in six months. Um, and culture is one of those things. It's like you, it's hard to recognize it because it's just what it's the like the fish doesn't know he swims in water kind of thing. Right. That's um, the old uh, David Foster Wallace line. Yeah. We just don't see it, and especially especially if you're in the majority culture, which you and I are. Um, it's just some things that we just don't see. And, so, and you know, some of the issues that, that Truman's wrestling with are just very broad, even just, you know, Western civilization sorts of uh, social imaginaries that we share. So it's hard to kind of imagine life in any other way. Um, but I think it is important for us because our tendency, I think, many times is just to make it an us against them sort of thing. And you know, some of the conversations slash arguments that, that we have in sexual identity areas tend to just be talking past each other, talking past each other. We're, we're talking about either behaviors or specific issues or specific topics. And uh, they're rarely fruitful um, because we're not really talking about the underpinnings that it all stems from. Um, so one, I think it just requires doing a little more work when we have these conversations. Well, maybe it requires, first of all, having fewer conversations and just doing more reflection. Mm. But when we have these conversations to, to do uh, harder work, uh, to listen and to try to discern like what is really the root of all this. And that's where I think Truman's book can be helpful for trying to um, diagnose some of that. Say, aha, this is a Marcusian idea. Not that you can say that to somebody, um, but at least for yourself, you can kind of, you have some tracks to run on then um, and to just more quickly recognize some of the uh, presumptions and the assumptions. And that, lies. I mean. Well, yeah, that, that yeah. we just sort of make yeah. as, as part of our social imaginary and part of our expressive individualism and, and the like. So I think we, if we're, hopefully we can be quicker to recognize that. And, and can have conversations that are that function on a deeper level that will always be more productive than having just these sort of superficial sort of topical behavioral sorts of questions right sure I mean this is kind of like the part of the work of like a good counselor right it's it's never sort of the presenting problem it's like you have to work and get okay what's the root of all this um, so this is a helpful book to kind of have with you as you, kind of dive into that arena yeah um and not just you know as a way of engaging with others but with ourselves you know to use this as a as a a way to help self do self-evaluation like what yeah. what, are, what are the ways in which i'm caught up in this um i think yeah. that's kind of where i've sort of been spinning my wheels a little bit you know, just kind of reflecting on like, boy, this, this maybe runs more deeply in me than I've really given thought to before. Yeah, that's good. So unsurprisingly, I'm going to come at it from a different angle than you. I know that's going to surprise uh, our long time, <laughs> our surprise, our long time listeners. That's why we're here. Um, but one of the things that the book made me think about um, was it made me think about what is forming my imagination. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, okay, there's a social ima imaginer, imaginer. I can't, why am I having trouble with that word? 
there's our social imagination and our culture. And to be fair, there's only so much we can do to like resist that. Right. Like it's not like we're never going to be a hundred percent successful with that. Um, But I do think, especially um, in like one of, one of the benefits of our like individual age we live in, like there's a lot that's wrong with it. And that's a whole other sort of conversation. But one of the benefits is, is we get to choose what forms our imagination. And, and we get to fo- we we get to form what we put into our brains, and our hearts, and in front of our eyes, and all of that. And so, um, for me, it just made it just really confirmed for me that I want my um, imaginations and the way that I'm thinking to be really shaped and formed by the scriptures. Yeah. And so, um, am I am I giving myself to that forming my imagination, rather than? Um, whatever the culture is saying, right? So yeah. that so so there's that. Like a, being aware that there is a cultural imagination, um, or social imagination, or like whatever words you want to use, um, helps me think about okay, what what is my to what to what degree am I participating in that, and how much of it is healthy, and how much of it is unhealthy? A little bit like what you were saying, um. But another thing it helps me th- think about is, um, am I testing the messages of the culture against the scriptures? And and am I being more formed? And even in my reading of the scriptures, am I being more formed by the cultural story than by the biblical one? And so, um, again, that's hard to parse out, right? Because, again, you can't totally divorce yourself from, like, no one's a blank slate coming to the scriptures, right? Like, we just have right. to admit that. But but as much as we can, we want our like imagination to be formed by the scriptures. And I and one of the things that really stood out for me, and I'm at the risk of like having a really spicy take here. Um, one of the things that really made me think about was just because um, Joe uh, um, Joe Westerner isn't reading Rousseau or whatever, doesn't mean he's not shaped by him. You know what I mean? Yeah, Truman like, made that point a few like, times. He's like, like, look, I know most people have never heard of these people, so, but they think like them. So here's where I'm going with this, and you're probably not going to like it, but but here we go. <laughs> I mean, we say all the time, well, critical race theory is just a law school thing. And I would just say that just because it's just a law school thing does not mean it's not shaping the way people think. Like that, Like that's a red herring. And so the question is, is are the things that it's espousing true or false? That, that like that's the lens. Not well. It's just a law school thing, and so we don't need to worry about it. Um, because I think I think I kind of fallen into that point of view. Well, it's just it, so. What if they're writing about that in the law review? Who cares? Well, um, it, it really can have an impact in ways just in ways that we don't imagine. And so, um, and that's just a hot button button issue right now. It could be something else. Uh, the point though is that we want to have our imaginations formed by the scriptures. What's yeah. forming your imagination That or my imagination? That was one of the big questions I walked away from the book having. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to touch CRT, but. Well, that, um, but that's, that's not the point. That, that <laughs> right. wasn't really my I know. point. My I point know. was. I know. I know. Um, yeah. 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 So one other thing that I was thinking of, and, and Truman made this point just a little bit. He sort of just hinted at it. It might've been more in strange new world. So. Maybe you didn't get to it, um, <clears throat> but he talks some about this idea of expressive individualism manifesting itself in a consumer culture. Yeah. 
and of course we live in a consumer culture. We, you know, whatever, we don't need to get into that. Um, but if, and the consumer culture in turn manifests itself in the church in a variety of ways. And we've probably talked about this before. Um, yeah, we have. And it's probably worth talking about again, to be honest, because it's, it's so prevalent. It's so prevalent, but it's this idea of, I mean, you hear it all the time. Like, did you like worship today? That's the wrong question. Yeah. Or at least not the first question. <laughs> right. Um, like preferences aren't sinful necessarily. <sighs> But right, it, it, right. It, it's yeah, yeah. But you know, we've gotten to a point where, <clears throat> how do I say this? Um, we want to make things all about us, and we live in a time and place when we legitimately have lots of options for church and yeah. youth group and Bible study and whatever else. And, and that's so, just in your town. That's before you even get to podcasts. And, yeah, and and the internet. And yeah, um, <clears throat> the, I, I'm holding back on on a riff, I guess. But um, no, it's your turn to rant, dude. I do it all no, the time. It's your I turn. I know I've got a sore throat, so uh, I don't think I'll I'll last to the end of it. Do it, um, Kevin. Do it. No, 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 no. But I mean, look, we we want to turn everything into an a la carte experience, from you know our streaming services to our food to to church. I've made this point before on this podcast. Yeah. And I think part of that comes from this idea of expressive individualism and the age that we live in. And it's all about sort of us and our experiences. And we um, sort of evaluate everything um, through how it makes us feel. He talks about emotivism a bit too in these books. Um, And that's kind of part of our age is how how does it make us feel? Um, Like he even diagnoses some like, you know, there's the incident at Middlebury College, like in 2017 or so, where the students protested, you know, this uh, speaker who was coming and it wound up like one of the professors wound up getting injured and hospitalized because of it. And then, uh, you know, they write this letter, you know, saying why they don't want this guy speaking on their campus. And, and Truman sort of like analyzes it and he just points out like all these things he's been saying. You know, it's like, notice how this line is very much Rousseau and this yeah. line is very much. You know, and it just kind of that was a very it. powerful section like, of the book. That's so interesting. Like things I just never really noticed before, but now we have words to put around it. Um, and how how much of it was based on how it made them feel, not was this guy right or wrong or does he have valid ideas, but just how it makes us feel. And we bring that into the church and we say, well, how does this make us feel? And not that feelings are nothing. But they shouldn't be what guides us. Or ever they shouldn't be everything. Yeah. Yeah. And they yeah. shouldn't be the means by which we evaluate um a worship service or a church or you know, whatever else. Um, so you know, in the age of expressive individualism, we're already like having to fight against the idea of it's just me and Jesus, and the idea of trying to build community is a struggle. Yeah. Um, people kind of know they want it but they don't really know that they know they want it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, uh, we're, we're back to Mark Sayers again. Right. We, we want community, but we don't want to be bound by it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's that. And then there's just the, the, the consumer culture, which just makes it about our preferences. Um, sure. And that has profound implications and how we, you know, how and where we choose to worship on a given Sunday. Right. And when we decide to leave one church and go to another and then maybe bounce back and, you know, do some here, do some there, do, 
I mean, there's just like lots of implications for that. And lots of implications, even, even if you're a person who's like, I've been at this church 40 years, I will be at this church 40 years. But how do I then interact with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in such a way that's unifying and is not about me? Well, you know how you stay at a church for 40 years? Um, you yield preferences, right? Because the way churches survive to some degree is they adapt a little bit, right? Now, hear me. I'm not saying the gospel message changes, right? But it's a, a worship service looks now than it did in 1950. Yeah. And like that, and and like that's okay. You know, yeah, yeah. or or, yeah. or even even in traditions like yours, where there's like a more rigid order of service. Like, yeah. I, I, I would guess that it just looks different. And again, this is part of the conversation that as a pastor, you have to think about all the time. How do I honor? you know, the, the preferences of my older saints and my younger ones. Right. And part of that is, is you have to give your older saints a vision for, no, we, we want the next generation. Right. Yeah. And so um, be being willing to sacrifice preferences. And one of the things that worries me um, is n neither generation seems to be very excited about doing that. Um, yeah. And, and so that's why we have worship wars. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> right. it, um, again, we're getting maybe a little bit far afield here, yeah. Um, but but it's relevant from like the individualism standpoint. You know, it's one of those things where there's a ditch on both sides, right? And there could be abuses on both sides. Of course, the individual matters. Yeah, yeah. Right? Of course, like I want to meet the needs of the people in my congr congregation, and I care about each of them as individuals. And as I'm preparing my sermon, I'm thinking about particular people. Like that's all true, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's also true that I think at the end of the day, I care more about our life together. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, like and that's what I and that's where I feel the weight of. You know what I mean? Um yeah. I, mean, I don't know if I'm I don't know if I'm expressing this very well. Well, uh, um, um yeah, I mean it, maybe I would say this way, and maybe this isn't quite what you meant. But right. you can you can always uh, bounce off of what I say. Yeah. Um, there has to be some balance between uh, meeting needs of individuals and meeting the needs of the body. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can't. You. Uh, so some things that some things we say, just just kind of like to the body, right? Um, and probably a lot of things we say on Sunday morning sermon are kind of to the body or even just almost morning, everything, the whole, the whole worship service, even. Yeah. Um, and then often during the week, it's, it's probably a little more geared towards the interactions we have are geared a little more towards one on one or, right. you know, smaller settings or whatnot. Um, but both of those things need to happen. Kind of talking about this a little bit recently with somebody. And it's like, you know, as leaders in the church, you need to be having those individual conversations with, with your sheep, right? Yeah. Um, but you also need to have like group interactions with your sheep because different things come out and different things happen with the entire body versus just with one or two or a small handful. And so you can't just exclusively, you know, do one or the other. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if that's quite where you're getting at, but. I was getting at like what keeps me up at night are not necessarily the concerns of the individual. 
I mean, they are sometimes if they're serious enough, you know what I mean? Because I care about them as people. But what what where I feel weight as a pastor is um, our collective life together. Are, are my people being discipled? And yeah. by that, I don't mean just an individual. I mean, like, uh, I mean, do, do, do you see what I'm getting at? Like, the, the I think so. And, and what's interesting is I don't know that my people are thinking about it the same way. Well, that's probably true. Well, I guess, well, but, but this, but this goes to our point. Like um, one of the benefits of our, of our having the jobs we have is we're sort of forced to not think of the church from a consumeristic point of view, because if we did, we'd never get to please we, We'd be running around. We'd be on a treadmill where we're, we're never satisfying anybody. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so, but something gets lost in transmission somewhere, I guess is what I'm saying between like our trying to think of our lives together. And they're like, well, did I like the sermon or not? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a different way of thinking about it. And I hadn't really thought of it just like that till just now. But, but I think that's, I think that's part of what we're up against. Right. Um, So, so as pastors, like the way, the the way we're, the way we're applying um, Truman's work is okay. Man, how can I speak in a way that's going to break through that? Am I right. teaching something that's counter to or, or am I challenging individualism in a way that's and in America that's like exceedingly hard, right? Yeah. Because then you're a socialist or whatever. Right. I mean, depending on how you do it. But it's <laughs> right. yeah, but, but this is part of the challenge, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um I just said a mouthful, but you can inter- you can interact yeah. with it. Yeah. Well, okay, so two things. I mean, one, just to the last thing you said about being a socialist. Um, part of it is you have to just find different different language for it, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes I'll, I'll sort of, yeah, like I, I'm saying something in words that you know people can understand, and they don't even know that what I'm really doing is I'm challenging an, an ism that's behind the scenes. I'm just not using the word ism because otherwise right. it would just be a, a red flag. Because then that's all they hear. Yep, and it just, it just wouldn't go anywhere. So it's just like, all right, I'll just use different words for it, but describe the principle, yeah, you know, and, and show it from scripture or just, you know, whatever. Um, so, so there's that. Um, the other thing I was thinking of is just, you know, I'm trying to think a little bit more too, just, just, just for myself, not even like, how do I pastor those people who are stuck on this, but also, also how am I, like you said this a little bit earlier about, you know, trying to be more guarded in terms of what you soak in. Yeah. Um, and I preached on this today. Uh, I'm in first John two verse six, he says, you know, if you abide in me, you know, you'll walk, or or if you say that you abide in him, you'll walk as he walked. And I went to John 15, I am the vine, you're the branches about abiding and kind of what that meant and what that looks like and uh, what it is to abide in Christ. And that's kind of what I was thinking about when you were talking about, I want to just soak in the scriptures and make sure that that's, you know, what is my dominant, um, thing in my head. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that was kind of my encouragement today to, to myself and to my congregation. Um, it's the idea of abiding in Christ and, and being attached to him, um, you know, through prayer, through word. And, you know, I said, and through fellowship with his people, um, because that's an important part of abiding with Christ is being with his people um, for, you know, with all of their warts and, you know, all, all the stuff. But yeah. But that's part of how we grow, and that's part of how we bear fruit. So that's yeah, that's good. That seems like a good place to land, Kevin.
Yeah, I just landed the plane on accident. Usually we just crash it. It does sometimes feel like we're building a plane in midair. But yeah. Yeah. Well, so I would just say, like, if you're out there, this piqued your interest at all, buy the book Strange New World. If that piques your interest and you want more, then go and buy Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Unless, like, you're a big old nerd. And then, you know, just go, go for it. Go straight to Rise and Triumph. Yeah. 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 All right. You know, Fair we enough. had our poll not long ago about which of us is the bigger nerd. Uh, and uh, I, I was, it was determined that I am, and I dispute that claim. We need to go to the tape. But... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, you've been listening to Matt and Kevin Talk Church. We hope that what you've heard has been, well, intelligible, if nothing else, but also um, helpful and edifying. We keep setting the bar lower every week. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so if you have questions, comments, concerns, observations, sanctified musings, or emotional outbursts, you can, because, you know, we're all about the emotive self, um, you can email us at Matt and Kevin Talk church at gmail.com or you can follow us on twitter at mktc and hey listen if you're so inclined if you wanted to leave a rating on uh, itunes ideally a good rating on itunes um, to just help people find our show or maybe share it on your social media we'd be super appreciative so with all of that said uh, i'm matt and i'm kevin and we've been talking church and carl truman's recent books be warm and be fed <laughs>